Hmm. Here's one thing I will say. It is, it is impressive that you can listen to a an artist's music and say, I bet I know exactly how you smell. Like that, <laughs> I feel like it's, it's relatively rare. Hello, 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 and welcome everyone to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where four lifelong musicians, lifelong friends, and lifelong critics go through the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die and give our extremely learned, in-depth, and never-biased opinions on the great work of other artists. I am Tom. We have our normal uh, cast of players with us in the studio this week. So let me introduce them first. We have... Adam here. Bill. And I'm Rob. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Looking forward to a robust discussion, guys. We're coming off of last week's The Queen is Dead by the Smiths controversial album that ended up being a unanimous decision in the end only the second unanimous decision that we've had um for making it on the list we've had a couple of unanimous not making it on the lists but uh yeah we're uh you know we're gonna change uh change speed a little bit we were back in the 80s and all the way across the pond in england before this uh, this week we are going to 2003 for Devendra Bonhart's Rejoicing in the Hands. Full name of this album is actually called Rejoicing in the Hands of the Golden Empress, I believe. Really rolls off the tongue. Yeah, really, it really does. <laughs> That's what was missing tongue. from my appreciation. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> That's the full title. So I've also I've heard his name pronounced as Banhart. But I've always said it Bonhart from always back in the day. It seems more, I don't know, artistic to hippie. say Bonhart. Right. So, yeah, I'm sticking with that. Hippie, Adam. Why no, would you sorry, say hippie? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we got a, we have a fun little album here. Um, it is uh, basically known as a freak folk album. And Bonhart is kind of credited with being one of the founders and sort of leading voices of the quote-unquote freak folk genre. He is uh, our age, so he was born in, 18, in 1981, not 1881. He was born in 1981, born in Houston, raised in Venezuela by his mother. So he spent a lot of time in Venezuela. You can kind of hear some of that Spanish influence, I think, on some of the songs, not just the lyrics, but some of the guitar styling and stuff as well. Moved to California when he was a teen, lived in L.A. for a while, then moved on up to San Francisco to the Bay, where all the freaks from the country <laughs> flock at some point. <laughs> And, you know, studied at the San Francisco Art Institute, um, ended up dropping out to pursue a musical career. Now, as the story goes, he was kind of a busker in San Francisco. He'd play on the street corners, and I think you can guys you guys can kind of tell from the musical styling that that would be pretty con- conducive to, like, sitting in a BART station and just endlessly playing and talking about the shit you see in front of you. On a five-gallon bucket. Yeah, hearing that this guy spent some time in San Francisco is not a surprise at all. No, not in the least. Um, 
We should probably mention that three of us spent quite a bit of time in San Francisco, and two of us live there now, so we feel well acquainted with the freakiness of the city. Yeah. And his, honestly, his style seems appropriate, for sure. It's fun. It was like, we had talked about this uh, when San Francisco was changing. Not always changing. Every city always changes. But people were complaining about how it's all just tech bros now looking to make a million dollars. And they wish that it was you know more like it was back in the early 2000s. This is the early 2000s San Francisco that we're talking about here. And I kind of hated those people like i hate the tech bros too but i they were like oh i wish it was back like it was back in 2005 i was like with all like the the weird hippies who didn't have jobs and you know kind of stunk up the place like i I don't know maybe i'm curmudgeon and i hate people generally but i i'm not pining for the days when like psychedelic folk freak guys roaming the streets in dresses was the was the order of the day first of all I I agree. It's a little silly to romanticize the past in that way, so I laugh at that convention as well. I'm sure that's going on in every city around the world, of course, always. You should have been there 10 years ago. However, I do like the weird AF-ness of San Francisco of days past. And quick update on that. I believe I already told Tom this, but the other day while I was running out on Market Street, I saw the Mystery Machine, and it gave me a little glimmer of hope that something freaky and weird was coming back. In other words, a van that was painted like the Scooby-Doo yeah, yeah. van. And I was like, oh, that's that feels like something from when I first moved to San Francisco. Positive. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, the city's coming back to life. It's it's it is getting better in general and like I like I I would agree with you, Rob. I would prefer the freaky deekies to the tech bros. Um, but you know, I'm also a pretty boring person now, and I'm sure that tech bros think I'm a square, and the freaks would think I'm a square too. So I guess I'm content to be a square no matter what. Well, I, I the another San Francisco anecdote. Sorry, we may do a couple more of these. Is that <laughs> coming from small town ish Delaware, as we all did, and moving to San Francisco right around this time that this record was coming out? I, I remember one of my early experiences of being with a friend who had been here a little longer than me and being on the bus, and someone got on that city bus. I, I can't remember the exact outfit, but it was a crazy-looking dress on a gentleman, and, and and the dress itself was just crazy. And I just remember no one in, on the bus acknowledged it. And I, it was a learning experience for me, because I was like, oh, this does not warrant a, a glance Even a in second San Francisco. Right, right. This, is, this is the city I'm in now, and I kind of thought that was cool. I would like to clarify that when I said, uh, you know, the the freaks walking around in dresses, I was not talking about trans people. I was talking about the uber hippies, right. like that, which I think is an entirely different category. Like True. if you if True. you are if you are any any human being who feels like wearing a dress, good for you. But if you're a gigantic hippie and you have a long beard and long hair uh, and you're just doing it to be kind of weird, then also, screw you. But you deserve the ire. You deserve the ire. Of Tom. Right. Of Tom. Tom's ire. And, but, and potentially Adam. Right. <laughs> New podcast name, Tom's ire. So, so Bonhart kind of got his start playing the streets of San Francisco, busking. He apparently played his first actual show for like a, a wedding in the Castro, which for people who don't live in San Francisco is the, the gay neighborhood in san francisco so as i remember when rob and john first moved to san francisco john was working at the pottery barn 
in the Castro in San Francisco, which he described as like the navel of the gay universe. It literally has the like seventy five foot rainbow flag flying out in front of it. It's gigantic, and it, you know. Anyway, so he was living in the Castro, um, you know, playing weddings. That's kind of how he got his start. Ended up moving to Paris, also busking over in Paris, but then got some legitimate shows. Apparently, opened up for Sonic Youth as one of his, uh, you know, big gets and playing over there. But but then he was back very shortly thereafter. He didn't, he didn't stay in Paris for too long, just long enough to. I'm sure have a bunch of questionable sexual experiences of Parisian <laughs> women and then come back to the United States of America, a, uh, you know, a young man on the grow. Um, yeah, I, I, I like this album. Um, and, uh, I do think that it has a lot of that sort of maybe unpolished scatteredness to it. Um, Real quick, before we before we jump into sort of just general opinions on the album, I, I find this to be hilarious, all right? So he is put the album out on Young God Records, all right? So this, somehow, uh, he was playing a show, and the wife of the guy who runs Young God Records, her name is Siobhan, heard about him, saw him play, brought him the, uh, the uh, demo that he had made, which is like 30 tracks or something like that. But they're all recorded on like literal, like the four track cassette tape recorders and answering machines. Like he literally was recording on answering machines because he didn't have the ability to actually. Yeah. Play. I listen to some of it. It's it's rough. It's it's. That's very, like the Daniel rough. Johnson stuff, right? Like a lot of that is the same way. It's like two two boom boxes. You know, he'll record guitar on one boom box and then hit play on that, record on another, and sing live. A lot of those old Daniel Johnson tapes have like uh, essentially like unique vocal tracks, right? Like the one you had had a special vocal tape just for you. <laughs> so you tell me this is the polished version of this guy? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, so kind of. Um, but the one thing that I that I want to point out that I, that I thought was like hilarious because you know you go down these sort of rabbit holes of doing some of the research. And there's not a lot of information on. Bonhart specifically before this recording session, there's not a lot of info on the recording session itself. But the guy who started Young God Records um, is also one of the producers on this. This guy's name is Michael Gira, Gira, G-I-R-A. Um, he was the founder of the band Swans. Have you guys ever listened to this band Swans? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, they they suck. They're <laughs> unlistenable. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what, what do you really think? I'm, oh no! You should listen to some of their stuff. They're they're just described as a quote unquote no wave, so they're not new wave. They're no wave, which means that they're like atonal and angry and like heavily like apocalyptic. Like the the name maybe Young I'm God. A, maybe I'm thinking of a different band. You are thinking of a different band. Yes, you are definitely thinking of a different band. So they're cited as influences of such bands like Napalm Death and Godflesh. <laughs> oh yes, this Napalm is the guy who Death. heard. This is the guy who heard Avenger Bonhart and was like, oh, I got to get me a piece of this. <laughs> like, would they be more different? The, the, even like the name Young God, which is the name of the record, comes off of an EP, which was like, it's called the Young God EP, but sometimes, because they didn't name it, it was, they just gave, there was like four songs on it. So some people call it the Young God EP, but some people call it the Raping a Slave EP, <laughs> which is another one of the songs on the album. And I just think like, the, the oh dissonance God. between... The guy who's in that band, and then here's this like 
wee little fairy folk guy with a guitar and is like, I gotta sign this dude right away. It's like, what universe is this, like, makes sense? What's the through line here? Well, in one, he's talking about golden corn, and the other is, like, napalm. <laughs> yeah. That's intense uh, dichotomy there. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, you know, listen. I've, I've listened to this album before. I, I like this album from back in the day. I had gone and seen him in like 2004 i think so like very shortly after this album came out i was a big fan of it i liked it a lot list i hadn't listened to it in a while but listening back to it i i still appreciate the whimsy of some of it but uh i can definitely see that there is not as rob said there's not an easy entryway into this music and uh, so I'm curious as to what you guys thought. Were you able to get past the just bizarreness of it? Um, or was it just, you know, a, a hard stop, can't get into it? Yeah, so I, uh, just listening to you talk about how he, he traveled around the world, and I'm wondering if in his travels he bought a guitar case or if he just drug his guitar around <laughs> by, by the strap in the streets of San Francisco and on the airplane. Um, but in all seriousness, so driving home from D.C. this weekend, I was a little tired. Uh, we had just spent a day walking around and I uh, figured, Hey, I'll listen to this album. Definitely not the right album to try to stay awake to, but that's not, that's not a, to its detriment. But so I wound up putting on the, the new Royal blood album and that woke me up. I did like this album. It's got a, it's got a sound. Yeah. It, it, it's, it wasn't for me, it wasn't super deep. I'm also not like a super deep lyric guy. Like I've never bought a book of poetry and just read it and contemplated it. So uh, it could be I'm not deep enough to quote unquote get it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> if there's anything to get, uh, right, I'm always I'm always doubting myself. Like, wow, this dude's really deep because I have no idea what the hell he's talking about, or he's not talking about anything. But this dude's really deep into the acid, right? <laughs> Yeah. All right, so I feel a little better about myself, uh, but yeah, it it was it was it was a nice listen, and uh, I, I'll, I'll leave it there. With I, I definitely have some criticisms that I'll we'll, we'll get into, but overall, I I liked it. Nah, nah, nah. I, you know, I say it like that, like it's bad. Um, I didn't really feel, uh, you know, like like the record was was bad. Uh, I'm I was more familiar with. I think it's called Nino Rojo. Nino Rojo. Uh, Nino Rojo. <laughs> Nino Rojo. Yeah, thank you, Tom. So I was more familiar with that record coming into this. Um, and honestly, to me, this just sounded like sort of the same record, you know? Funny you say that, Phil. Uh, <laughs> there was a, the recording session that he recorded this album for. He recorded 50 songs. Good. And then he broke them up into this Songs. album in Nino Rojo. Yes. <laughs> Songs. Yes. 50 hey, musical ideas. Yes. Yes. Songs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just couldn't get into it. Like, I mean, honestly, this is the first of the, you know, eight or nine records we've done so far. We're like, I, I actually had trouble. Getting through it. Yeah. yeah. Just, you're, and, and... You're, you're putting this below 461 Ocean Boulevard. Oof. I think I do. Oh, damn. It's, right. l listen, it's not as offensive to my sensibilities because as we discussed with Eric Clapton, it was that was a result of him not trying or taking an obvious cash in and that is that's more annoying. I, I placed 
place more of the blame here on the producer, the, the guy you just talked about, the young God guy who said, we got we to gotta put a microphone in front of this guy. No, don't practice or figure out any song structures Structure. or finish writing any of these songs. We want you now, and we can only have you for the exact amount of time it takes for this record to play. So just sit down, do your thing, false start as many times as you want, cough <laughs> as many times as you want. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's all going on the tape. <laughs> Oh man, when you say it like that, <laughs> you know I gotta tell you, I I did find that to be part of to say that part of its charm. I don't think is necessarily what I'm trying to get at, but I think that it gets across that sense of like you're walking by a dude on the streets of Paris and you hear him playing and you stop and listen for 20 minutes and you walk on and like that's kind of what you could get. Um, and I think that if that's what they were trying to go for, they certainly nailed that. My question is whether or not that is worthy of actually putting down on tape right. and reproducing. Whether or not it was deliberate on either his or the producer's part, they got across the sound of a microphone in a room and Rob just not caring. Listen, it was not it was not unpleasant. I don't I don't mean it that way. But I I am this is an aesthetic that I found a little hard to get into. This kind of, it feels very tossed off, and and in that so in that similar way where it doesn't feel like a ton of work was put into it. He's clearly a great guitar player. I think the guitar itself sounds very nice. But yeah, I, I look for a little more lyrical content and song structure and finished songs and songs that go more than two minutes and things like that. So my initial take was kind of it's very precious in a, perhaps in a way that early 2000s indie rock sometimes is, you know. Not saying I can't like anything like that. And it's very intimate, which is sort of a compliment. Almost like maybe I shouldn't even be listening to it, like I've wandered in on this homeless guys, you know, <laughs> ritual or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to back away slowly. <laughs> It's, 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 so it's, it's clearly idiosyncratic, and I don't necessarily... I've liked other things like that, and that's why I kind of approached Tom, who'd said he liked it, and said, hey, tell me how to kind of get into this. Because then when I was listening to Devendra in interviews and stuff, I kind of... I, I mean, he's a little much also, but I, I liked him a bit. Like, that helped me feel like he was... He seems nuts and definitely a bit like an acid casualty and things, but also genuine. And so I, I appreciated that part of it. I just wish he had kind of finished the songs. I think he's got, like, talent. But I just don't feel like this recording is capturing much of it. That's my take. I would say that, you know, when you listen to him being interviewed, you're, you're like, oh, there's not a lot of guile behind you in terms of this. This isn't, like, a calculated approach that you're taking. Um, it's it, it very much is, like, you get the impression that he, like, you know popped up from some like random incense and tantric sex session and then it's like rolled into the studio and uh you know hammered out 15 songs and like rolled right back in with uh you know like i got burritos let's it's like he just apparated out of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) out of the cloud of incense and yeah i just i remember one of the notes i wrote down i think on my first listen was like does this dude know how the songs go (laughs) i'm not sure no absolutely not and you can tell it's like, but but also to be fair, like you like Bob Dylan and like a lot of that early ah. Bob Dylan stuff, you can kind of tell that he's sort of finding his way. He's like, ah, I'm gonna double this chord for a little bit because I should have jumped in before and I didn't. Like, so I'm not <laughs> I, saying that they are directly analogous, but I thought about gotta, this. Yes. and I have a comment. 
Okay. I'm Which is, listen, shocked. no, I, you're right. I see, I see a line to Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan definitely is guilty or famous for doing this kind of impressionistic nonsense lyric word painting stuff. And I did think of Bob Dylan when I was thinking of Devender and I was really trying to find something in the lyrics. My take on it is if you're going to do impressionistic word paintings goofy lyrics you gotta do two things you gotta a be really really good at those word paintings which i just think bob dylan is and b the other thing bob dylan does consistently in my opinion is he kind of he kind of sucker punches you with one lyric that that has real sentiment that like ties it all together at the end or maybe not at the end but somewhere in there he mixes in like real good sentiment amongst not goofiness but like amongst these random sort of story metaphorical kind of sketches. So here's what I would say. Um, I am in no way saying that his uh, lyrics are any good. In fact, one of my notes is that like, he's like Raffy, but kind of for adults. <laughs> yes. Basically. He's like not quite to adult level, but maybe he's like Raffy for like preteens or something like that. Like <laughs> if you listen to uh, Nino Rojo, he's got some like little yellow spider and he's talking about like octopuses and like little twee animal stuff. Like he's very much not a serious songwriter at all. And it's, you know, like again, I, I find it to be somewhat whimsical and enjoyable, but it is very, it's like cotton candy. You know, there's like basically no substance to it at all. What I was more saying is the Bob Dylan comparison is not necessarily in the does he know how the lyrics go. I'm more talking about like when the chord changes come and like time signature and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I think that's just part of being, you know, just one man on a guitar. You can kind of fudge a lot of that stuff. And that I don't particularly find to be offensive to me. That you seem like just kind of just working your way through the yeah. chord changes. I think the guitar playing is good. And I don't really necessarily have a problem with the simple song structures. Again, Bob Dylan does that too. A, B, A, B, A, B. Or in Devender's case, just A, B, many times. Or just A. <laughs> or just, just A. <laughs> Unexpectedly. Or A, and we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> no, you're right. I think I, I, that stuff I don't mind. I don't mind his, even though his voice is very easy to make fun of, and I'm sort of waiting for Adam to mention the warble again. I have no idea seems, what you're talking about. Seems <laughs> a little bit ironic that we're doing this. Uh, this week. After. So, no, hold on a second. Rob, I, I was thinking very hard about this comparison, um, and I, I, I realized why this voice doesn't bother me, but Morrissey's voice does bother me, is because I feel like this, the, a singer like this, like, they're trying to hit a note and failing, and I feel like Morrissey is trying to hit a bad note and hitting it. And that's where I'm just like, it's like, it's like you're purposely trying to hit a note that's 40 cents flat, and you're doing it. <laughs> And, like, that's maybe what I find to be more offensive. I, I really thought, who would I rather be in the car with for a long road trip with, this guy or Marcy? And it's really a toss-up for me. Are they singing I'm, or are they talking to you? Because that would make... It's probably a combination right? for both of them. They just break into song. Or talk about well, the listen. flowers or how much they hate the king. I don't know. Now, yeah, now you have me thinking about Marcy in all these strange new ways. Like, the upside of Marcy on a long car ride. Here's one thing I will say. It is, it is impressive that you can listen to a an artist's music and say, I bet I know exactly how you smell. Like that, I feel like is, it's relatively rare. I can, yeah. only other one I can think of is David Bowie, and I'm like, you probably smell like an English garden, and it's fantastic. Like, 
Everybody else, I have no idea. This guy, I got a pretty good idea what he smells like based on his songs. You know, guys, I just noticed something really interesting about this record that I I didn't notice until now. Just, you know, staring at the, the track list on Spotify. But there is almost like a direct fall off in plays from track one down to track 16. Like... <laughs> it's basically like, what happened to you, right? It's basically like everybody gives up around track four. Uh, <laughs> there's a little blip. There's there's a little blip for uh, the beard for Shibahan, uh, but it's Siobhan. Siobhan. That's how you, that's how you spell Siobhan. What? Yeah. 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 Unlike my cousin. Oh yeah, that's how you spell Siobhan. All right, guys, and, guys, guys. Let me tell you a funny story. This is a San Francisco story. This ties into this period perfectly. This is the most embarrassing stoned moment of my life. So I was living at 6th and Irving in San Francisco, and uh, it was right around St. Patrick's Day. I don't remember why I remember that. And uh, I got ripping stoned, just like <laughs> stupid ripping stoned. Uh, by myself, which is a great move always. And uh, so I uh, hop on the train and I go down to the grocery store because I need groceries. Uh, and who doesn't want to get rip and stone before they go to the grocery store alone? Uh, so anyway, I buy my stuff and I go back to the meat counter and uh, the guy comes up, it's my turn. And I look in and I say, what is this? Uh, I'm interested in this, this uh, Chade Bregoni. And he says, you mean Chateaubriand? <laughs> and I just walked away. <laughs> left your cart. You just left the store. <laughs> I did consider. I did consider leaving. I'll be honest. I did. But no, I just went and got in line and paid and left. Probably didn't make eye contact with the person in the cash register. <laughs> That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. To be fair, I don't know if you had to be stoned to make that mistake. <laughs> Siobhan is a tough I'm sorry. Senior pedestrian. Siobhan, yeah. <laughs> really? I've seriously, I've seriously never seen this name in print. That, I mean, that's how you spell in the Gaelic version of it. If you are like my cousin Siobhan, whose parents were like, oh, actually, well, whose mom, because her dad was completely out of the picture, was like, oh, yeah, I want to name my kid Siobhan. You spell it C-H-A-V-O-N-N-E. That is how my cousin's name Siobhan is spelled. Which is the white trashiest way to spell it, I think, humanly possible. <laughs> anyway, and yeah. That's what you said, I was thinking of. So, you know. Phil, when <laughs> you said that there was a funny story, I was like, are you going to tell a funny story about my cousin Siobhan? I don't think there's anything but sad stories associated I thought you were going to run into Devendra Banhart at the, at the Castro Safeway, Phil. Oh, man, <laughs> no, that would have no. been... He's going to rub you with crystals and invite you to, like, some <laughs> weird orgy he's going to have later. I actually do have one more story, but I'll just save it till later. I'll make All sure right. we don't. I'll make sure. So just the one more point that we have to bring up at some point. I'm at, and you guys probably saw this in your, in your um, research. But uh, at one point, this man was banging Natalie Portman, which I cannot understand how that happened. But at one point, Natalie Portman and wow. Devendra Bonhart were an item. Wow. And she was like seen in photos with him and wasn't hiding her face and was being affectionate. In public. <laughs> wasn't hiding didn't her face. Didn't seem embarrassed. Oh. <laughs> All right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna launch into my story right now because Tom, this is the ideal segue. It literally, literally is like we talked about it ahead of time. So I saw Devendra Bonhart once at Outside Lands and like whatever it was, 2007 maybe, like the first one. And uh, he played the middle day, the Saturday day, the Tom Petty day. 
and I saw him, and he was great, I think. He had, like, a live electric band, you know? Uh, I want to say, like, Vetiver, or people in Vetiver were in the band. It was another, like, hip Bay Area, like, rock band, where his live band. Vetiver is also on Young God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incestuous. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so he was great. He was fantastic. Like, high energy, sounded great, a lot of fun, super cool. So, right after he's done... Uh, me and Regina are just standing there, like, waiting for the next band to come on. Uh, just, oh, which was M. Ward, because I'd seen somebody there, and they were like, oh, man, I'm so excited for M. Ward, and I hate M. Ward. So, excited for M. Ward? Yeah, exactly. I'm so tired. I want to listen to some M. Ward. <laughs> yeah, anyway. So we're waiting for M. Ward, and uh, there's this girl right behind us, and Regina's like, how the fuck did this bitch get a fucking dog in here? She's just a girl like, with a dog, like Toto, looks just like Toto. Uh, and we're just like looking at her, like, how did she get this dog into this music festival? And then Devendra Bonhart rolls up. He's wearing a Lakers jersey now. And he looks like a normal hippie, except he's like 10,000 feet tall. You know, he's like Bigfoot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he's like, hey, babe, you know. And she's like, ah, and he pets the dog, you know. <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's Natalie Portman. Dog. Yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. Natalie Portman. Oh, and, shit. And her. And that's how she got the dog in here. Wow. She's famous. Very, very famous. Right. Yeah. I'm just trying. Was this. Did she have a post Star Wars prequel career lull or something? What was going on there? Something, yeah. It's 2007. Yeah, it was like right around the time that he was like playing the festivals and stuff like that. You know, maybe she was. She graduated from Harvard. She casted about for what to do. Probably had a ton of money. You know, why not? He accidentally uh, took a shower the night they met, and she's like, oh, all right, I can get down with this guy. And then well, it progressively funny, like, got worse. He gave her a head of acid, and it, right. you know? It's, some, it's, of the, some of the pictures that I've seen of them together, like, he's not bushy-haired hippie. Like, it looks like he went to a salon, and his hair is all, like, kind of flowing, glistening locks. And he's, he's got, he's like, ready a for the trim MTV beard. Award, right, and he looks, right. yeah, he looks, like, a lot more cleaned up. And, that, and that's the other thing about this album is, like, the impression that I'm getting is that, like, he recorded this album when he was, like, 48 hours off the streets or something like that. Like, he had been sleeping in bus stations, and then the guy was like, hey, you should totally come record an album for uh, for my, my label. And he's like, oh, that's great. I've been playing shows at laundromats and sleeping in the back, you know? <laughs> like, and so I give him a little bit of a, of a break on the lack of polish. But... Let's get into it. Let's examine it. Let's talk about some of these songs and let's let's see sort of. Yeah, let's give it a nice honest. Let let the goat vibrato start. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. I knew you were going to bring that up. Just so we're clear, it doesn't bother me. Still doesn't bother me. I'm sticking to it. That part doesn't bother me. There's plenty of other things that do bother me, but not that part. Okay. All right. So we're going to start off with. The first song on the album, This Is The Way. This is the way I share my breakfast. This is the way I serve my sentence. I know, I know, I should lay low. I should stand tall. You know, I I thought this song was pretty whimsical, pretty light. I think compared to the rest of the album, it's a pretty tight song. 
Um, and uh, yeah, it's almost like they recorded these in sequence, and like he lost his focus as the day went on. Um, yeah, like uh, what, what do you guys think? Any impressions on this song? Did it just slide right off of your back like uh, like shower water off of an unwashed red? <laughs> It's one of the songs that sounds more like a song. That's one of the reasons I thought we should talk about it, or, or I was glad we were talking about it. <laughs> there is a and chorus it, that he returns to at least twice, I think, right? And it's yeah, it's melodic, right? There's it's something melodic, there. and it has a lyrical sort of premise, you know? Like a, there's a construction that he kind of goes back to. It just doesn't feel like totally free form like some of the songs do. So pleasant enough, yeah? Sure. Sure. This is the song on the record that I became most familiar with because I tried to listen to the record through several times. So I would always get through this one. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a pleasant major key sort of ditty. Uh, I, I, I am struck with, in general, like the impact he had, right? Like this song, I do think it is, is interesting to me uh, how there's a sort of... Uh, a generation of, of musicians and songwriters behind us, younger than us, who, who clearly sort of borrow from this sound. And I think you hear it more in this, like, less finger style, less complex song. Who, who do you think borrow? I mean, so it, let's talk about artists that it reminded us of. One of the things that I wrote down when this track came on first pass was it reminded me of Iron and Wine. Although that first Iron and Wine album did come out a little bit before this, but not too far before it. It also reminds me of Nick Drake. From the 70s. Nick Drake is yeah top of my list yeah. To me, to my mind, both of those folks use some of the same you know sort of production approaches, but and they have that kind of intimacy thing, but their lyrical content is you know significantly better. Agreed. But but who were you thinking of when you thought of like the the influence this this had had? Because I kind of want to, and I also want to talk more about what this freak folk thing even even means. Yeah, I mean, to me things that immediately come to mind, and this is going to be pretty all over the map, right? But um, I'd say Dirty Projectors, even though musically, like, way infinitely more refined, but still something sort of, like, weird and freaky and international feeling about it. Um, the other one... Um, I don't know. Tom, who do you think? Well, I, I have I have one more too, which I think this I think they're associated, and I know Phil at least Phil and I have talked about this record. I don't know if the other two have heard it. Is the Joanna Newsom record Milk Eyed Mender? Uh, she she's on this scene. Makes sense. I, I mean, clearly they've had they've had coffee together at least, <laughs> but I think her Milk Eyed Mender also came out in the the same year as this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're on the same label, but I think they toured together or something. Maybe they're both associated with like Nevada City hippie California. Unclear, but and she also has a voice that is, let's say, hard to like, although ultimately I liked it. You know, also, I mean, this isn't going to be on the mainstream radar, but, like, I mean, where do you think this fits into the Sleepy Sun, Sleepy Sun picture, right? Like, I can sort of hear Bonhart's voice in Sleepy Sun's lead singer, uh, well, okay, let's let's. But the song structure is totally different there, right? Because well, let's talk about freak folk maybe more broadly. Because I think you maybe Sleepy Sun would fall in that category, for maybe for Adam's benefit. Sleepy Sun is a band we kind of knew in San Francisco that has gone on and done some pretty, had some success. 
you know, they're in that category. What, what is freak folk? How, how are we defining that? Is that just the idea that we're bringing psychedelic ideas back to the acoustic guitar? Is it that general or any thoughts on that? I think it's less psychedelic and more, um, you know, kind of a lack of <laughs> like cohesion and narrative flow to any of the uh, the lyrics and like, you know, we're not really tackling these sort of hard subject matters and having it be more about the presentation and less about the content of what you are presenting. Um, you know, like you talked about Dylan earlier, like Dylan's all about the content, right? He's like, I have this acoustic guitar and it is a vehicle for me to get across my words. And this is all like, I have an acoustic guitar and I have words and they're a vehicle to get across my voice and my sort of overall quirkiness, right? Um, And so like, it's it's about sort of like non-seriousness, I think, generally. Um, And... That would, and I'm sure that, you know, Joanna Newsom, who was also lumped into this sort of psychedelic slash freak folk category, would say that her lyrics are for children and, you know, they're inviolable and, you know, they all have deep meanings and, yeah, sure, whatever. But, like, as I remember, who was it? Somebody, somebody that we knew in college was like, you got to listen to the girl. She sounds like a witch. Yeah. Like, she sounds the like first a witch. Time I heard it, I was she like, oh, yeah. yeah. 100% sounds like a witch. Okay. Um, and it's much more about that than it is about any of the things that she's actually saying. It's about the way that she's presenting them. And I think that if, if I'm asking, if I'm like trying to give my sort of how I'm conceptualizing this sort of movement and why they would be lumped together, it's it's about that. Okay. Oh, did I did I shut up this room full of like? No, no, no. I was I no. I was I was actually just trying to give it a moment to see if anybody else had anything to say. So so on the freak folk thing, like trying to a- encompass this, right? Like Tom, you said it, it's about more of a like a like sort of like a lack of structure, right? And like but for better or worse, a freedom in that. Freedom. Right? Yes, a freedom. Yeah. I, I sort of think of it like maybe a little more like uh setting a mood than necessarily being about like hey look at me right like the band is part of the experience not just something you're we're not just entertainers um and i feel like there's like a line from probably like grateful dead and sid barrett you know to you know devendra bonhart and uh, i don't know it may be even a band like animal collective right uh that i feel like is also really weird and avant-garde and i don't i don't totally get uh, but you know the weirdos, the hippies seem to love them. Yeah, the Fair kids enough. love them. <laughs> any other uh, any other comments on this particular <laughs> song? Um, you know, Adam, you, you mentioned. I think the only thing you mentioned is that it has a chorus. <laughs> so, you know, really getting deep on your praise there. Anything else you want? Because if I'm going to guess, it's probably be the song you would like the most on the album. Yeah, maybe. it's there's there's another close second just because it's it's weird and I appreciate how weird it is. Um, getting back to like the whole pitchiness thing. So for the most of the album, he is on pitch with his guitar because it, and I only did this on this song, but his guitar is tuned sharp. It's not, it's not a four forty. 
mm-hmm. probably sharp a little bit. So also means he didn't go into the studio and tune. Man can't afford a tuner. <laughs> he didn't tune his guitar. He walked in again after dragging it up the three flights of stairs by the strap. That's the Parisian said, tuning, Adam. That's a, that's a conscious choice. He tuned it to his heart. Right. So he tuned it to itself, but then he managed to sing with it, right? So I, I the stuff that annoys me about his voice is less about uh, his pitch and more just about maybe his inflections and the you know some of the quirk, deliberate quirky stuff that he's doing that he's maybe trying to find a sound for his voice instead of just letting his voice be his voice he's trying to do something weird with it which kind of annoys me there's there's only one song where i feel like i actually heard his voice i think we're going to talk talk about it later um where you can hear at the very end of the song he starts pushing it and singing loud and when people sing loud that's when you drop all your baggage. You drop all your whispering, whatever it is, right? You drop that when you're singing loud, and that's when I feel you hear a true singer's or, or a singer's true voice. And so I feel like we got a glimpse of that later in the album. Yeah, I will say I I listened to listening to that initial EP that he put out. He sings like a chipmunk on that. His voice sounds like really different, and part of that is a really crappy recording fidelity. But he also is not presenting his voice in the same way he's presenting it on this album. So I think you are right. He's probably casting about to find that sort of sound that's going to make him stand out. That was, I have to say, that all on balance, that was one of the things that annoyed me. because, And it felt at odds with what I perceived as his authenticity as a person, even though maybe it's a person I don't necessarily want to hang out with, a little too overflowing with, with love for me. But... <laughs> His singing voice did not sound much like his speaking voice. And I understand there can be a difference there. But yeah, it, it felt like an affect in a lot of ways. It felt like he was trying to be a, a wizard in right. a blade, right. cooking something up. <laughs> you know, and, and so that, that kind of... I, was, I, I wrote down, like, his accent changes line to line. Like, does he have an accent? Does he not? Does he not? I, I'm confused, right? So that made it... That, that took me out of it a little bit and made it feel a little less authentic, even while I... Like I said, I perceived when I listened to him in interviews that he was an authentic person, which was a vote for him. Mm-hmm. I will say this. At least he didn't do that thing because uh, he lived in Venezuela for many years. But at least he didn't do that thing where, like, you know, he lived in Venezuela for a period and then comes back and, like, affects a, a very heavy accent, like, a, as if he had lived there for a lot longer, like maybe some people that we know that lived in, in the country for a year and a half and 20 years later are still, you know, affecting the same uh, the same accent that they had. It's like when Madonna suddenly developed a British accent and everybody's like, wait a minute, you're from New York, yeah. wherever she's from, right? You're from Kansas. Right? I don't know. She's from, I think she's literally Brooklyn. Oh, she... <laughs> I think she's from Jersey. There you go. Oh, God, even worse. But yeah, it's like just because you were dating Guy Ritchie for like a year doesn't mean that he gets he get to have an English accent. Anyway, okay. Any 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 final comments on this particular song? This is the way. Um, Madonna's again. from Bay City, Michigan. Is she really? Well, God, that's what just, the internet told me. It's like you went from I was like, what's the most ghetto version of New York? And you're like, no, 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 it's even more ghetto than that. It's New Jersey. And then apparently, no, 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 it's even way more ghetto than that. It's Michigan. Michigan sucks. Sorry, Bay City. Sorry for <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You guys have been to Michigan, right? Never. Uh, for a never? wedding once. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was probably fun. I've been to Detroit, and then I've been to Western Michigan, and I would not go back to either one of them willingly. <laughs> What's that hey. email address again, Rob? 
<laughs> Email your thoughts and complaints to one thousand and one yeah. album complaints. You know what? Gmail. Everybody from everybody from Michigan, you come on out to San Francisco to come and kick my ass. And when once you get here, you'll just be like, uh, you know what? This is way better. Actually, I can't really fault him for that. Tom, you've, you've been on the internet, right, man? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, know what you're asking for. <laughs> I have people are going to come and get me. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I think anybody who's going to listen to us talk about the would not be the type. To <laughs> Sweetheart, I'm dropping three grand on plane tickets. Bringing my shovel. Yeah. What? Take this tongue guy out. <laughs> gonna throw. Gonna throw your prayer beads at you. <laughs> All right, let's go on to uh, the next song we're talking about, the song Poughkeepsie. Jumping out your door. Have you done it? Have you ever done that too? And so have you. Well, love me tender. This actually was the first song in this album that like I kind of got hooked on. Um and it's just so damn weird. I like it a lot. I like the two feet, two four feel on the guitar. That kind of it gives it like nice movement. Um, it's got very minimalist instrumentation behind it, um, but I yeah I I actually found on re-listening to it that I found more things that I liked in it, and uh, I'm judging by the expressions on everyone else's faces that I was very much alone in that opinion. So play it on me, guys. First thing I wrote down was this song sucks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what is that sound at the beginning? It's like a tape. I think it's like something wacky with with the tape starting up. Maybe can we can we listen to that like eight times in a row? <laughs> yes. So my impression is that it's like there's a lot of stuff that they're sort of leaving on the tape, and I think that that was uh, intentional. Or maybe it was one of those things where, like, we don't really have a choice. We kind of have to leave it on the tape because it exists mm-hmm. throughout so much of it. But uh, I think that was just him being like, Ugh. I guess it was a choice, but it was a bad choice. I, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> I know we I know we moved along from, what was the first song called? This is the Way. Yeah. The album starts with a throat clear. It starts with a mic bump. I couldn't get over that. I played it again and again. I get it. Yeah, maybe that was a choice. Thank you, young God, whatever that dude's name is. Terrible choice. I mean, it has to be a choice, right? It's again, it's these things that it's like could have easily been fixed, but you don't fix it. So you're either making it, you're making a choice by omission if you're not making a conscious choice. But yeah, you know, leaving on. I like this song. I think it's super, super weird. I like how he just name checks Elvis songs for an entire verse. That's not very right. that, that was of one of consciousness, things... right? Like, yeah. yeah. That thing that he does with the that I couldn't I just couldn't get down with that. I found that very uh, annoying, very simply put. <laughs> I, yeah, again, just didn't roll with me. I did like the strings. They were very uh, what's it? Pornamento, where you slide into every note. Everything is very. Mm-hmm. There's no hard <clears throat> hard stops. Everything's so I. I thought that was cool. Whoever did the the uh, the violins there, good job. But there's weird yeah. singing. 
at the same time, right? Oh yeah. I like well, it's like weird like witch harmony, right? He's singing. He's. I think he's singing the main lines. The other thing that I noticed is there's like vibraphones in the background. Yeah, almost the entire time doing like. I think it started the second verse. Kind of doing like. Yeah. I like that minimalist instrumentation. And Adam, to your point on the sort of like the the like I for me that it did the thing where it started out and I was like that's cool and then it got annoying and it, he made it back got cool again to the other okay. side all right. to the other to the other point where I was like all right if you would if you had stopped it two bars earlier I would have been like that was stupid but <laughs> the fact that you stuck with it I give I give you credit for sticking to your guns anybody else want to want to piss on this song <laughs> who is who's the woman singing backup like is it somebody cool or is it is it some no. it's somebody some who was cool. that was supposed to be one of his uh uh, influences uh what's what's the woman's name vashti bunyan i think who who had some songs she's she's on the older side now but mm-hmm. i think she had some songs in the 60s and 70s during the original psychedelic acoustic thing and it's exactly what you would expect super falsetto singing about flowers and the sunshine and love and daisies and an acoustic guitar <laughs> instrumentation was a bit more than than what he has but I believe that's who's who's singing on that one. Just and her curi- voice isn't bad. Just out of curiosity, like, what would everybody say their favorite band is from that like summer of love, hippie San Francisco Woodstock Altamont area era? Like, but it's got to be like one of the hippie bands. You got to be like, you know, it's Grateful like Dead, Big Brother, and the Holding Company. Yeah, they would they would definitely count. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll say Grateful Dead. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say Grateful Dead too, but it seems like the obvious choice. I, I, I was always a fan of Janis Joplin's stuff generally. Yeah, like, you know, Big Brother and Holding Company. Was that's solid. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I could say Grateful Dead. I could say I could say you know, Jefferson Airplane for fun or something. Cream, who's say Cream? But they're British anyway. Yeah, they're. they're... Uh, just curious. Cool. Yeah, let's. Uh, we can move on to. Uh, Will is my friend. Um, the next mm. song we're going to talk about. It's going to get dark. it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> <laughs> accurate, very accurate. All right, what do you guys think? I think these lyrics are insulting, not just to anyone who's ever <laughs> spoken the English song. language. <laughs> these lyrics are insulting to anyone who's ever failed out of a college improv audition. <laughs> I like. He looks like he's just like looking around the room. Here is a pen. It's overflowing. There is my foot. And there's the window. I this is terrible. I think I honestly think it's terrible. But sorry, not to go against it a little bit, I will say this is an example. He almost redeems it. I think the most of the lyrics are so terrible that it, it can't be redeemed. But the this is our father and how he strayed is a good example of what I was talking about with Bob Dylan, where nonsense, 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 made-up lyrics, made-up lyrics, nonsense, one lyric that has some actual meaning. I can sort of understand what he's going for there. I just don't think he really sticks the landing or the takeoff. Well, this is a man who, on his his, uh, debut EP, had such uh, luminary song titles as, and this is all one word, mm, plush humble horse, and then me and Andy singing El Rio, and I played organ while Coulter played guitar. So he clearly puts a lot of thought into the overall uh, lyrical presentations. 
I get, Rob, I completely understand the guy raised on Bob Dylan that you would listen to the lyrics like this and be like, you should just try harder. You, you should, you should be, uh, ashamed of yourself. For some reason, I don't get insulted by shitty lyrics in rock music. I get insulted by shitty rap lyrics because like that's kind of all that you're bringing to the table. But like I don't, uh, I don't know why. Terrible lyrics in rock music never really bothered me all that much. I can sort of relate to that, Tom, and that I find that I have no patience whatsoever for anything but excellent folk music. Like anything but the best seems almost unbearable. But really fantastic folk music really pulls me in, like into the world, like fully in, and and I can understand that. Can to just just to be clear, the line is Will is my friend, Will sings like John, going back to California. <laughs> Rob, this is the, the one where his, where his accent really changes on every, yeah. every reading of California. He's really trying okay. to figure out how to say that word. <laughs> my, he only lived there for several years, so how can he expect it to know how to say it? Will is my friend, Will sings like John. Back to California Well is the West Coast with me Well is the past is a plenty <laughs> My one sentence was Sounds like he's compensating for how bad the song is by making his voice extra annoying. <laughs> so if he, can, <laughs> if he can make us focus on how bad his is, then we won't hear the actual lyrics. So. Yes. So I, as somebody who likes this album and doesn't, I don't dislike this song, but I like about this song is like the very sort of minimalist accompaniment that goes on behind it. I like the bass. I like the piano. I think that they're tasteful. But yeah, his voice sounds like it, like a somehow out of tune trumpet or something like that half the time. And it, it's, it's not. If you told me that the engineer was named Will and the other guy was named John and that there was a lemon tree outside the window of the studio, like <laughs> that would not surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. This is what we talked about with, um, with uh, 461 which is it's a bunch of 90-second ideas that he then stretched to five minutes. And this is a bunch of 90-second ideas, or maybe a bunch of 30-second ideas that he stretched to 90 seconds in a lot of these cases. Again, there's so many tracks on this album, though. And this yeah. is not one of those, like, really, really 16. tight 35s, you know? Like, we got 16 tracks on an album. And even though the tracks are only a couple minutes long, it's not like most of them aren't that long. Well, that's it's why still, I said I, I am tempted... Yeah, I'm I'm more tempted to blame the the producer, the person that that told him to put this out because um, unless it's really being directed by him because yeah, to your point, at least he sort of know the the songs are definitely underdeveloped. And I suppose to his credit, he does not stretch them and pretend they're developed songs, so that's nice. But this kind of raw approach, I just don't think was the right approach for him. I think he has an interesting way of playing acoustic guitar. I think he even has an interesting singing voice and probably an interesting writing perspective. And I haven't gone deeply into the catalog. I listened to a little bit of Nino Rojo after this and maybe a sampling of other songs. But it just feels like he kind of grew into himself a little more as time went on. I also think that like, if you just took the best songs off of Nino Rojo and the best songs off of this album and tried to put together a tight 34 minutes, like you'd actually have a pretty good album. 
but this is like, you know, a lot of minutes of, you know, basically put out like a double album when you should have just put out one and cut a lot of the stuff that might have even been able to go on that one album. How do you think he decided which songs went on which record? Did you find anything in your research on that song? No. Dude, there's just not a lot of information available about this particularly. Um, so I don't know uh, how he decided which ones go on there. I'm going to guess there was a lot of drugs involved. That would be just an educated guess. <laughs> Um, anyway, so yeah, uh, I, I like, again, and I know that this is something that, uh, is unconventional, but I think it lends itself to this particular type of songwriting and song construction to keep in the stuff like the sound of the stool creaking and the sound of a person like walking over to the piano in this song. You can kind of hear all that stuff sort of happening in the background and it does, make it a little less like we did 37 takes and we spliced together the you know, Fagan-esque type of, um, you know, because if you got the impression that the amount of work that went into the Nightfly went into making this album, you'd be like, this is terrible. But this seems to be like a weekend's worth of work. And so that's the thing that I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, it's a good weekend. what it is, yeah. I think the stool creaking, you know, is 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 cute right and and there's something very tom waits about it something you know you're always recording right but um yeah it, it's a little over the top in general uh especially with the songs that aren't really complete well let's talk about uh this beard is for siobhan um so i i, I this is like i think my favorite song on the album i really like this song um it's very absurd, but it's absurd in that kind of, again, that kind of fun way. This is the one that really gives me the Raffi vibes. Like, I could see him talking about llamas and pajamas and, you know, stuff like that. Um, also kind of gave me a little bit of, um, you know, that Ween song? Have you ever seen a whale with a polka dot tail? Have you ever? It's on um, The Mollusk. And it's like one of the, what's the, say, what's the name of that song? I'm trying to remember what that song is called. Anyway, it reminds me of a Ween song, kind of. And again, Ween bay. is another band. It's not Down by the Bay. That's a Raffy song. <laughs> but yes, like, <laughs> I know. But I dig, it does have that kind of Raffy feel to it, again. But uh, I would say that, like, if, as, as somebody who likes Ween, Ween can have great lyrics. They can have terrible lyrics, too. And I don't kind of mind them when they're absurd like this. So um, I think that's one of the reasons why I like this song, particularly. Um, but he does do a very... Um, exaggerated affectation on his voice. I think it fits particularly well in this song versus other songs. I, I've been ragging on him pretty hard, so I'll jump in and say I think this is definitely one of the better songs, if not the best song on the record. So I, I agree with you, Tom. This, this just feels like one... I also felt like this sounded like a kid's song in, in a positive way, like a Johnny Karate birthday, kid's birthday party kind of song. Totally! Johnny Karate, yes. And again, it has... A clear theme, which is the body part thing. It kind of goes somewhere. It sort of peaks out on like, in, instead of peters out, like a lot of the other songs do. So yeah, I, I absolutely think this is this is where he is showing. At, you can argue about whether or not you like this this style overall or not, but I'd say this is a better representation of the style he's even attempting to get to. And absurdity, I agree, it doesn't bother me at all inherently. But I need I need some kind of structure. I need some kind of format and that's what this has well there is the theme that runs throughout the album where he talks about rejoicing and beards 
a lot. He talks about beards a lot. A lot of beard it's talk. Kind of weird. A lot of beard talk. Again, just uh, that that just makes you feel like you're like man, you probably have like four day old burrito rice stuck in your beard somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one song, by the way, where he pushes his voice at the end. And when I say pushes, yeah. I mean he's not—he's not really pushing, but like he's at least giving it, you know, sixty percent. And you can kind of <laughs> hear the actual timbre and and tone of his voice when he's going for it at the end there. And the, a real good time, good time. So that I appreciated actually hearing. Uh, what his voice sounds like on this track. My teeth don't bite. I can take them out dancing. I could take my little teeth out and I could show them a real good time. Tra la la la. Well, a real good time, a good time, a real good time, good time, a good time, a real good time, good time, a good time. Actually has a climax, although, and I I know this has been throughout the record, but the tra la 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 thing, I just feel the irony of it since we were making fun of Marcy for doing exactly that last week, and he has lots of tra la 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 moments. <laughs> Again, I'm sticking with I'm sticking to my guns. Doesn't actually bother me that much. I'm more concerned with the other aspects of the song, but he he's kind of a ridiculous vocalist. What I liked about this song is just that it has. I don't want to say it has a chord pattern. All the songs have chord patterns. The guitar works quite nice. But this song has like a chord pattern that, that demonstrates more thoughtfulness, right? Like, I didn't examine it, you know, mathematically. But like, you know, there's, there's essentially like a key change baked in there. Uh, you know, and it just keeps you interested. He didn't just come up with that one on the subway platform. He did not come up with that. Yeah, exactly. Like, he didn't write that one on the subway and then, you know, talk about the lemon tree and, and Will's beard. Uh, Actually, maybe that is what he was doing when he was busking. Maybe he was just trying to work passersby into songs, and then he just tr- then he pretended that those were in fact songs. I could kind of see that now. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And uh, you know, Rob, I will, uh, you know, I I will again uh, also sort of stick to my guns on the the Morrissey thing versus the Devendra Bonhart thing because I do agree that they're both ridiculous and they're both sort of relatively imprecise singers that I would argue that Morrissey is like more annoyingly imprecise. But uh, part of the problem that I have is again with, with presentation and like this is being presented as like, you, you can't take me seriously. Like there's just no way you can take me seriously. And I feel like Morrissey was trying to be like um, sort of like overly clever and like, look how, look how clever I am. And this is almost like, look how fucking dumb I am. And so I can, I can almost respect that a little bit more. Anyway, that Ween song is called Polka Dot Tail, and it is the third song on The Mollusk. And the first song is that song, Dancing in the Show Tonight, where he sounds like a fifth grader with mentally... He's like a mentally challenged fifth grader singing about how he's going to be at a talent show. Ween, I swear to God, they make it so that like you have to really want to listen to their album. Within the first three or four songs, they always throw a couple of them in there that are like, if you can make it through this, then the good stuff's after that. But like, we're gonna weed out the the you know the casuals before we get to uh, the real meat of the album. Yeah, posers, how dare you buy our album and expect to like track one? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> track two, Spinal Meningitis. Yes. All right, let's have a small child sing about how they're gonna die. We could also make their voice sound like a demon. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, I gotta go. When, when's that Ween album coming up? I gotta listen. Yeah, to I was that. gonna say, <laughs> look forward to all the Ween albums that are gonna be on the list of one thousand one albums you must hear before you die. <laughs> Which is a travesty, by the way. They should have at least two albums on there. So let's get this moving along. Uh, we have been talking about uh, songs that were ridiculous and songs that were a little twee, and let's move on to a song that is both ridiculous and twee. The title track, Rejoicing in the Hands. Um, you know, Rob mentioned wanting to listen to this, uh, to, to talk about this song, and I begrudgingly said yes because I don't even like to listen to this song. <laughs> I th- honestly, I think that one of the things I like about his singing style and his guitar playing style is they do a lot of like counter rhythms together. And it's like impressive that in one take, you're just sort of like doing a counter rhythm on your, your hands while you're singing something different. And this is just, he's like following the melody that he's singing on the guitar. And I don't find it to be particularly good at all. Incessantly. It literally doesn't go anywhere. There's no change. It's yes. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's, it's the same 10 notes in a row. 25 times or whatever it is it just yes so i didn't um i didn't pay close attention to this song until it made the list of hey can can we talk about this song so i i think i have first of all it's a really long one minute and 41 seconds right like it is (laughs) a very that short it's it's 100 101 seconds it's a really long 101 seconds I do also, in a different way, think like this is a odd but good example of Bonhart's sort of influence on like folk coffee shop songwriting. Like we've all heard this done worse after this, right? By someone else on a street corner or in a coffee shop. I, but I feel like we've heard it done worse before this too. That's that's true. That's very true. I have one last point. I just want to see if there's any pushback there. I don't think so. I think we all agree yeah. it's been done worse yeah, before sucks, and sucks. after. Yeah, sure. sure. The other thing is I do think this uh, – I don't think I would have thought about this before this conversation. It's a good example, though, of like the weird like psychedelic trance thing they're going for. Like psychedelia, it doesn't really matter what format it is. Like Pink Floyd or Defender Bonhart or The Grateful Dead like, or, or even like modern dance music. It's like – it's about the trance, right? And this is very trancey in that way. That's the goal, is to just like pull you into the melody. I think it's kind of effective in that. It's just terrible. Yeah, I think I, I asked to go over it because I, I agree with what you said, that it doesn't do the counter rhythm thing with the guitar, and it's very samey. But at the same time, that, that also, yeah, to Phil's point, that kind of pulled me in a little bit. Like, it felt like a little break from the rest of the album. Not exactly that I would say I liked the song, the fact that they put a harmony over it, and maybe I don't know—is there like a—is there a bass? Wait, wait, is, like is, that even, is that guitar? even a harmony? I think she's just doing it's an just double. Of, okay, yeah. it's just or, a double. Anyway, it just there's felt some like a little instrument, some kind of high sound. I don't know what it is. It just felt like a little bit of a break, and maybe it—I I don't think it's one of my favorite songs, but I wanted to call it out as both the title track and as something that sounded a little different. Whereas a lot of the other songs blended together very readily for me. Does it bother anybody else, or maybe not bother, but when listening to an album, do you like, uh, this is all guitar-driven, obviously, the guitar sounds exactly the same 
in every song, right? It's very obvious. It's a single mic in front of him with the guitar. Do you yearn for like, oh, well, this song had a little more treble or uh, this I, song had, I know what it, you it was mean. panned or. Yeah, it doesn't it just... bother me. Like to me, it, it does add to the intimacy of the record. I think that's very much like the Nick Drake vibe too. Like nylon guitar, one microphone turned up real loud. It's like you can hear him, hear him licking his lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say I like the record. I just want to be, I do think there are things about it that are, I think, intimate and redeemable. Authentic is a word Rob used at the top a lot. That I, I do think, like, there's something about this that reminds me of my, like, my own dreams of, like, crafting the perfect indie record on, like, a Tascam 388 in your bedroom. Like, I don't think this achieves that, but I think it's 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 pursued in that vein. Although Tom's going to tell me it was recorded at Abbey Road now. No, right? no, no, like, no, no, no. I mean, it was probably recorded, like, at a Greyhound station or something like that. Um, but I was thinking back to, Rob had mentioned earlier, Iron and Wine, The Creek Drank the Cradle, which is a, a million times better than this album. Like, incomparably so. That is, that is a fantastic album. But that was, like... Yeah. Same guitar sound the entire time, but it's because the dude like recorded it in his kitchen, and you know like I can that really tracks as genuine and like heartfelt and like Adam, I don't know if you've listened to that album. I haven't. Have, do the, the songs actually go places? That's the other thing too, is that this feels so one note. <laughs> it's, it's a great album. A couple different ways. It's beautiful. Album. Okay, and yeah, like, so that. He does that thing where there's like so many layers of his voice on top of each other that it sounds like one voice, but you can pick out a million different voices in it. It's okay. really good. Cool. It's all it was described in a review as it sounds like it's being lovingly whispered into your ear, and uh, that's kind of like what it feels like. It's a beautiful album, fantastic. Nice. Did all the things that we're talking about here a million times better, and yet did not make the list of one thousand. Yet did not make the list. You must hear before you die. Travesty. Luckily, it's already made our list of uh, (laughs) snubs. Yeah. Um, Cool. Um, The last comment that I will make about this is the song where I was like, uh, along with that song, "The Body Breaks," um, that we did not talk about, but that's the one. Those these two songs together painted the picture in my head of the dude who has the acoustic guitar and he's always trying to play songs for like every girl, like even your girlfriend who'll like play songs for her in front of you. He's like that guy. And I can t- totally picture Deventer Bonhart being that guy, trying to pick up your girlfriend in front of you by playing songs to her and then just being like, hey man, like why do you have so many boundaries, man? You just, like why are you so uptight? You just have to like close your eyes and experience life, man. I'm like, you're trying to, you're trying to fill up my girlfriend. You want me to close my eyes and experience life? Come on, go to straight to hell. <laughs> In the dark we are without a rembrandt's light In the dark we are without a light Half asleep we're calmly waiting through a night Half asleep we wait till she arrives Anywho that's what rejoicing in his hands was about. Yeah, so. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he had to go home that night and rejoice in his hands. <laughs> oh, boosh. Okay. So, uh, I, honestly, we're going to be hard-pressed to work in a, a Jimmy Page diss on this podcast. Ooh, so, everybody yeah. start thinking about how you're going to fit that one in. All right. Next, we got the song Fall. Um and uh, yeah, let's let's talk about what our impressions are. Of this I feel like this one got a little bit of a break from the rest of the album. The song "Fall," right? 
Nice difference. Yeah, this one jumped out to me because it reminded me of an, another album that I, I do like, which is a Grizzly Bear album. I can't think of what the album is called right now. It has like a picture of a spade like from a card on the front. But it, yes, it, it felt like a difference in, in approach, in production. So it just jumped out to me as a, as a break from the album. I, I found a lot of the tracks, as we said, there are many, a little bit difficult to get through on multiple listenings. And I was always like a little bit happy when this one came along. Do you think it was the percussion? It's like the only song. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the only, only real song. percussion. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's funny how much of a difference that makes because it's just a couple of bongos. It's not even really good percussion. It's just, you know. Agreed. And I, I think the way the percussion is recorded sort of like lends to, adds to the sort of roominess, right? The sense of like, this is just happening, man. You know, like in a positive way. Um, while, you know, also still feeling in time and professional. Adam, any comments on this one? Yeah. I mean, if, if, he, if they had taken this and made this track five, it, maybe the album could have moved along a little better, kind of break up the one through ten that's just all, again, kind of that one note. I don't know. You know, it is funny how many times in these uh, in these short, what, seven episodes we've done so far that we've talked about how important song ordering Track is. arrangement, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, don't introduce me to something and then let me get tired of it before you introduce something else to me, um, which I think is, this album is definitely guilty of that. Or like, don't don't start with the worst and then... Give me like something that's really good towards the very end. If that's if there's only one good thing on it, just put it right at the front. Do the right. hip hop version of it and say like, what do we think is going to be the biggest hit? Track one. That's yeah. the one. Okay. Um, they, and they might have done that on this. I think that they might have thought that, uh, you know, this is the way it was going to be the big hit. Um, one thing I will also say is that uh, that kind of like uh, oh oh oh. oh, oh it plays better than trying to put in dumb lyrics. So I think that also is probably part of what makes this a nice little break is that it's not like a word salad assault at you. Mm -hmm. It is a little bit more of a, you know, this, it, it's, it feels more rhythmic and it feels more melodic in there. She leave no trace, she don't leave her at all. I caught feels and song that we're going to talk about not the last song on the album but the last song we're going to talk about which is the one song on the album that like i have put on to like some of my spotify playlists that i like play in the car and stuff with todos los dolores um there's just something about the fact that the song is not in english i think that probably helps it along a lot um and uh yeah i enjoy this thing i think it's, i think it's a nice little ditty and it has the feeling of almost like something he didn't write
that's better because it's not in English. Similar, Tom, to how I remember when we first saw the movie The Raid in the theater together, not only did it have great fight scenes and choreography, but we agreed that it did not... The fact that it was in a different language helped bad action movie dialogue not be a factor. And so Devender's bad lyrics, if we can even call them that, don't definitely don't get in the way here. So this was one of the more enjoyable tunes for that reason. I just want to point out, before maybe we go on to praise the song a bit more, I'm not sure, is that without the false start that is left on the track at the beginning, it would be under two minutes. Like, they're stretching. Stretch, stretch, stretch. <laughs> when the well, band leader gives you the drag it out symbol. <laughs> the one thing that I will say about the false start, I, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but if it was a move that was intentional, I think it was actually kind of smart, is that... Uh, it builds tension in the song, specifically when he gets to that part at the end where he's kind of doing that, like, the singing's kind of over, and he's kind of holding on that one chord before he goes into that, like, da 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 Whereas you know that they wouldn't actually put a version on there where it falls apart, you know, a minute and 40 seconds into the song. But for some reason in your head as a listener, you're like, whoa, I wonder if he's going to make it through. And, you know, it's not that that's, like, a serious thought that that one, that one has. But I, but that's, like, a nice kind of device. And, again, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I I, I like I typically would like a false start for the, for the reason you're saying. And also because on a well-produced, like, a tightly produced album, it can humanize the band or the singer a bit. So I actually don't mind it as part of this isolated track at all. I think it does what you said about the tension, and it humanizes him a little bit. It's the, the problem is that it just feels like all these ideas are stretched with a series of coughs or count-ins or coughs after the song is done or ahems or whatever else he's doing. You know, so then, like, in context, it just feels like a bit much. And that's a fair point. I, w- I, I will say that I listen to this song not as a part of the album almost exclusively. Like, I haven't listened to this album all the way through in 10 years before this. And, uh yeah. I will say it had a bit more shine on it in my memories. I, I can't honestly yeah. say I've listened to this album all the way through in the last 10 days. <laughs> I couldn't actually get through find... it. Yeah, well, not in one sitting, no. I couldn't get through all, you know, 39 minutes of it. Uh, it, it, it some of these songs are a really long minute and a half. Uh, just a really, really... It'd be much more listenable if you just cut all the vocals for me. For sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a different way, it's wonderful background music. It's wonderful furniture music. Yes. It's just there, taking up space. Or an art gallery where it's a... Setting a, a mood. ...display a, of trees yeah. or something. But if you look right at it... He's also a visual artist and does all of the art for the the band, I guess for his stuff. Which is pretty terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the cover of Rejoicing in Your Hands. I'm not that impressed. Yeah, it looks like uh, it's a doodle. Again, it looks like something that they didn't spend a ton of time refining. Um, but, Phil, to your point about you hate the album, I get it. But I'm curious about this particular song. And it, does, this, it, does it even, like, jump out from anything else in the pack? No, I do like the comment about uh, it not being in English, right? And that does seem to take the edge off it. Uh to a degree, especially when you're like looking right at it, right? When you're listening to it with intent, um, you, you know, it's just easier to take it more seriously because you don't know what he's saying. Yeah. I only know, I can only pick out like one or two lines in there. 
and sure. the one is like, uh, I have keys for your house, basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like, He's talking yeah, about no, the sun okay. will rise. I didn't translate it. My Spanish isn't so great, but yeah, my Spanish yeah. is terrible. Tomorrow, I'm thinking about my cousin. We probably shouldn't go too, too too much deeper into this. No, no, we should not. Each house uh, you're going to find out it's a bunch yeah. of like uh, racist white nationalists. <laughs> <laughs> the Avengers like, a plant. It's got Juden. Why does he keep saying Juden? What's going on there? Oh my god. Um, yeah. Which would be actually that would be friggin' hilarious. <laughs> Just like super crystal hippie. Like, uh, you know, incense and tantric sex, white nationalist, Jew invading, <laughs> like, you know, like, that would he's, be He's quite flipping the stereotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, we have rounded out the album. Uh, we're coming back to the home stretch. So, if you guys were annoyed at having to listen to this album and are equally annoyed at having to talk about this album and how much you dislike listening to it, don't worry. We're coming down to the home stretch, and let's get some final thoughts. Does this album make the list? Don't hold me in suspense, guys. <laughs> What's it gonna be? So, I surprisingly, I didn't hate this album as much as Phil, which I <laughs> find very funny because, gi- given everything about me and the vocals, you would mm-hmm, think that yeah. I would absolutely loathe this. To a certain extent, for kind of background music, chill music. I'd be okay with this. I, I, I didn't hate this. Uh, I'm not going to deeply listen to it again, and it's definitely not making it onto the top 1001. But the, the re- redeeming uh, part there is that I didn't hate it as much as Phil. Sure. That's, that's what I can say. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with, with what you said. I actually think it's... You know, <laughs> I hate it more than you. <laughs> yeah, accurate. Yeah, I think that's accurate, yeah. I mean, I actually do think it's it's not bad background music, right? It's not bad if you're not paying attention to it, and I don't mean that in a in a cruel way. Like, I think uh, Bonhart is like a really smart guy. I thought his live performance was shockingly high energy and sort of like not what you would expect at all. Which to me just reinforces like he he, he there actually is like a degree of intent, even though the it appears that the intent of this record. Is is to demonstrate how how off the cuff it is, right? And like how how they have no intent. Um, this definitely doesn't make the list for me. I feel like, uh, I, although I do sort of like this style. I like this freak folk style. I think uh, I think Nino Rojo is better. Um, I think there are other just better examples of this style, and 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 really of of Devendra Bonhart. Uh, I also, just as a hilarious note, uh, he has his own record label called Gnome Song, and I feel like that just demonstrates a certain self-awareness in, in the man, right? Like, these are songs by a gnome, and for here gnomes. he is. <laughs> for, possibly four gnomes. I yeah. am four gnomes. Yeah, so I just think it demonstrates he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing, and it's nice background music. But no, I, I can't. I can't listen to this or or recommend anyone else listen to it. Yeah, I agree. It does not make the list. It is definitely not essential. I like. I, I certainly don't hate it. You know, far from it. I, I think it's nice. Yeah, as background music, what everyone else said. 
But I, and I like the idea that more people who are idiosyncratic or, or weird and want to make experimental records and try different things and try to versions of songwriting, I like that that exists. So I, I'm glad it exists. However, I don't think it's essential for you to hear it. So I, I, don't, I don't think ultimately it was success in getting in that across or even getting his vibe across, like we said before. I think some of his other stuff later, he came into himself more. So the fact that the songs are unfinished effectively... And he takes a sort of, what's that Tenacious D track where they're, Jack Black has the one note, and he's like, next song, next song. That's what it reminds me of. Like, it just, keep keep moving it along, you know? Anybody could have wrote that. But, but yeah, but guess who did write it? Me. So, uh, no, Devendra, no. You're not on the list. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I enjoy this album um, I enjoyed it more when I was not examining it through the lens of is this essential listening? Because I cannot in good conscience say this is essential listening. This is inessential listening. I've, I found it to be pleasant inessential listening, but it is certainly very inessential. And the one thing that is like occurring to me kind of just now um, is that this is 2003. He was born in 81. So he was like 22 years old when he was doing this. So he's basically a 22 year old burnout who's like you know not that far off of living on the streets and busking in uh you know the the bart stations and so i i do give him a little bit of forgiveness for being disorganized and being not sure of where he wants to go and getting better at the craft over time um because certainly at that time i was also a, a complete and total mess and i couldn't have put together something that was and um, and in all fairness i'm sure if some guy had said you're the next big thing, man. Just get in there. Just, you know, just don't. Absolutely. Don't yeah. put out that cigarette. Here's another 20-ounce Coca-Cola. Like, you know, like, just play it up, right? Another San Francisco story. Do you guys remember that dude that used to play in the Bart station that had a music, he had a broken violin, but he would play it with a lot of intensity as if it was real. And then he had a music stand, but the music stand had, like, sheet music that just said, like, A, B. <laughs> Okay. Like, you know, it was like fake. The whole thing was fake, but he was quite a performer. Now, if that guy cut a record, that would be talking. So, sounds like all the votes are in. Oh, for four. Sorry, Devendra. He actually seems like the kind of guy that, like, if he ever did listen to this, would kind of be bummed and be like, oh, you guys don't like me? Oh, man. <laughs> Just judging from the interviews that I've heard of him, he seems like, again, he seems like kind of like a genuinely nice and weird guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, but I'm sorry. Your album is inessential, and you will be relegated to the likes of, uh, you know, uh, 461 Ocean Boulevard <laughs> with an O for 4 on essentialness. Um Okay, now it is time to figure out what we're going to do for our next week. We're going to consult the great oracle. Tom, before the oracle, there was a question asked earlier, which is, is this worse than Ocean Boulevard? And I don't think so. I'm still still putting... Yeah, it's definitely not worse than... Yeah, yeah, Uh, I agree. I would sooner put this on than that. I mean, if that's the question, yes. I was offended by 461 Ocean Boulevard. <laughs> I was not offended by anything on this. That's still the bottom of the list. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get a new last place 
<laughs> What's going to be the one? That's like the bar has been set. It's at 461. That's the low bar. And, uh, you know, wait until we get another even lower bar. Um, awesome. Okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's talk about what we are going to do for next week. Um, gonna spin up that Albinator 5000. Hopefully this will be a nice palate cleanser from the contentious albums we've had the last two weeks. Um, (laughs) although I think the Smiths was much less contentious than this one. This is just more universally, um, uh, I would say milk toast response. Mm. Nobody really hated it except for Phil. It seemed like he kind of did hate it, but, uh, either way. Let's find out what we are going to do for next week. So, drum roll, please. Next week, we will be reviewing. All right. I never am sure if I'm saying it correctly. Is it MIA or is it MIA? MIA's Kala? I'm also not sure I'm pronouncing the next part right either. (laughs) MIA's Kala. We're going to go with that one. (laughs) Kala. Kala. Um, I want to consider an edit there. I think she's like. Uh, <laughs> this is the one with paper planes on it. This is the one with paper planes on it. Yeah. Uh, is that the gunshot? Uh, it's the cash the register gunshot. ones. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. the the one I'm familiar with. All right. The the album or the song? The song, rather. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say you you don't you don't bump this one. It seems like a good a, good a time as any to uh, call it a week. We will see you guys next week. As always, if you think we got anything wrong, if you think that we had an incorrect opinion, if you think that we're a bunch of idiots, or if you think that we're geniuses, write us a note. We have an email address set up, 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. Send us your most vitriolic hate mail, and we will read it live on air. Um, and uh, flagellate ourselves if we find uh, your critiques to be valid. So... Keep that critique coming. We're critics, and we can take criticism, so bring it our way. Uh, until next week, I have, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. And I am Rob. Boosh.